1: Prior to 1961, if you go back and look at textbooks and you look at what was being read in the Ivy League uh, seminaries, you have a consensus that Pontius Pilate didn't exist. But at the theater, in secondary usage, uh, the Italian team that was excavating there in 1961 uncovered this slab, which had an inscription on it that uh, is a dedicatory inscription to Tiberius, From Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilatus.
0: Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we identify the core claims of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today, we're going to talk about the top five archaeological finds that affirm the Bible. We're also going to talk about some skeptical claims that have been brought against the Bible over the course of history and how some of those were eventually answered by archaeology. We're going to discuss all of those questions and more, but first, I want to let you know about the Unshaken Conference. If you haven't heard me talk about it already, you can go to unshakenconference.com. This is a brand new four-city conference that I'm launching with my good friend, Natasha Crane. Our friend, Frank Turek, is joining us for the first year, and our goal is just to help you live your Christian faith boldly in a chaotic culture. This is not just another apologetics conference uh, with lots of information. There will be lots of information, but we're hoping to really practically equip you, even if you've never studied apologetics, before, this is for you. So again, go to unshakenconference.com. Uh, we just had our very first date in Dayton, and it was wonderful, and we're going to be coming to the Los Angeles area and also the Nashville area, and very soon we'll be announcing our fourth date. So check the website for that. Also subscribe to the Unshaken Faith podcast, where Natasha Crane and I bring you 15-minute weekly uh, commentary on hot-button cultural topics and how we can live our faith in a culture that is really becoming uh, hostile to our beliefs, and so uh, check those things out. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, helps so much if you subscribe and click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video, and of course, sharing on social media helps as well. And also, if you're listening on audio platforms like Apple or Google or Spotify, leaving a great review, rating, reviewing, all of that helps get the word out. All right, so I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Scott Stripling, who serves as the the provost at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas, and as the director of excavations for the Associates for Biblical Research at, and I'm not, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this, Scott, you, you pronounce this for me. What <laughs> Where are you doing that research?
1: <laughs> well, if, if you're struggling with it, it's probably Kerbet el that's Makatir el Makatir, and that's, that's our it. previous dig, but now we're, since 2017, we've been working at ancient Shiloh.
0: Okay, great. So, so tell I'm us about
1: both sides.
0: Okay, gotcha. So tell us about your work because you know you're not just somebody sitting in a classroom teaching certain things. You're out there doing the digs. You're overseeing yeah. these things. So tell us about your work and what's that? What's that like for you?
1: Well, I've had the privilege. First of all, thanks for having me on, Lisa. I've, I've had the privilege of taking the land of the Bible as my own laboratory, and so it was really a dream come true to be able to take something that was really important to me, which was the biblical text, and then to examine it in light of material culture. And and one thing I think it's important that people understand is that when these artifacts come out of the ground, they're mute. They have to be interpreted. Um, and the Bible is our go-to source in that part of the world. And For those who would argue that the Bible is an unreliable historical source, that's problematic when one is excavating biblical sites, for example. And we'll Mm -hmm. talk about a couple of examples today, but what we get to do is to slowly, scientifically excavate these archaeological sites, record the data, publish the data, and then interpret that in light of any pertinent text for example, the Bible or the Amarna letters or uh, letters from Mari and so forth.
0: Great. So let's talk about archaeology just as a discipline. I think uh, one of the things I learned when I audited an archaeology class at Southern Evangelical Seminary is that it's better to use the word affirm or illuminate rather than saying a finding is going to, you know, prove something. Talk about that a little bit. What are the limits of archaeology? What can it do? What, What does it not do? And, and what is it?
1: Well, archaeology is a subscience of anthropology. So, anthropology is the study of human uh, behavior, human ways, and archaeology is u- human material remains. So, it is uh, very different from, say, paleontology, which is dealing with dinosaurs and dinosaur remains. Um, if humans and dinosaurs interface with each other, they're probably in the tummy of the dinosaur that will uh, find the human. So there's very different ways. Um, The the science itself is about 150 to 170 years old. So still very, very new. And we are currently in what I would call the golden age of, of archaeology. Really, we are cutting edge now with, it's a soft science, but all the hard sciences interface with it. And so like on my staff, I have um, numismatists and geologists and microbiologists and so forth. They're doing all kinds of scientific testing. And then I'm coordinating all of that to sort of give a cohesive message to what we're, what we're finding.
0: Okay, great. And so uh, when it comes to certain artifacts, um, how can that support certain texts we have in the Bible? I mean, would you go so far as to say some of these could actually prove something to be true? Could we make that claim? Or how should we talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're sort of careful about that. Our goal is not to prove the the Bible. It doesn't have to be proven. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But But in the process of doing scientific archaeology, it certainly establishes the veracity of a text. It creates verisimilitude, and a verisimilitude is when what we find in the material culture matches what we would expect to find if the text were true. Mm-hmm. So it passes the smell test, in other words. It, it's very consistent with what you would expect to, to find. Um, if you think back to the famous Indiana Jones scene from The Last Crusade, when he's in the classroom talking to his students and he writes truth on the chalkboard and says, If it's truth you're looking for, that's in Professor Hall's philosophy class down the hall. Here we're dealing with fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and and so it is true. in one sense we do bifurcate. I mean, we we do want cold, hard fact. Um, truth is the faith claims that go with it. And I'll give you an example. Um, I've written extensively on this. I mean, we we now know that Jesus existed. That's nobody's really seriously claiming that there wasn't a historical Jesus. I could prove to you that Jesus existed when he died where he died and how he died what i cannot prove to you is that he died in your place right that's a work of the spirit that's a truth claim so to show that there was a historical jesus and we've excavated crucifixion victims with nails still in them so i mean we could talk about the process of crucifixion how it was enacted in those decades during the life of jesus and, and how burials were done because we've excavated many first century tombs so all of that adds to that texture, to that verisimilitude. But did he die in your place? Mm. That, that's a truth claim. So I would prefer to say that archaeology illuminates the text mm-hmm. and sets it into a context, really, so that we can understand it here and now the way that they did then and there
0: it's kind of it reminds me of the way theologians talk about uh special revelation versus natural revelation right paul talks about this in romans 1 how every person who's ever been born can look out into creation and know that there is a god and even know certain things about his divine attributes but you're not going to get the trinity from uh looking out into nature right you need the special revelation uh, that is god's word where he has revealed himself in his word so it kind of sounds like there's like a similar Type of uh, yeah. thing going on there.
1: Uh, well, it so- is, and I don't want to start a new doctrine, but I've often thought, you know, we've got general revelation, special revelation. I've often thought that archaeology is almost a, another subcategory of evidence. You know, you've mm. got properly interpreted, you have another historical record in the archaeological material that, that bears record of God's existence.
0: Yeah, that's very good. So how much of Israel has been excavated? How much is left to be excavated?
1: Well, let me throw the question back to you. Um, how much do you think has been excavated?
0: Well, I think not very much has. Am I right about that?
1: You're right. Yeah, <laughs> um, about five or six percent. And uh, this is why I often laugh when I hear someone say, you know, well, we haven't found archaeological evidence to support this or that. (laughs) Well, 94% of the land of the Bible has not been excavated. Do you think the evidence might be in the other 94%? (laughs)
0: Right. So um, why is that? Is there a lack of funds, lack of people interested in doing it? Why do you think so little has been excavated?
1: Well, it's a slow process. I mean, we spent 21 years excavating at Curb al-Makathir, which is 10 miles north of Jerusalem, biblical I or AI of Joshua 7 and 8, Ephraim of John 11:54. I mean, that's a small site, and we worked there for 21 years. And you have multiple problems. You've got political issues in that part of the world. And then, of course, we're in the West Bank, so it's even more complicated. Uh, yes, funding issues, wars, famines, uh, pestilences. Uh, COVID-19, you know, Mm. we just, um, anything imaginable that could get in your way, vandalism. Um, so all these things are factors, but by and large, we do have access and we're able to work, but we have to sort of like digesting a meal, you know, you, you eat and then you have to digest that. So we excavate for say five weeks in the summer, and then it takes us the rest of the year to understand what we excavated, to do our testing and to write it, to publish it. Wouldn't it be much easier just to eat all my food for the day in one meal? But then I really wouldn't be able to digest it properly. Right, right. It's a slow process.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And we're going to get into the top five archaeological finds that affirm the reliability of the Bible. Of course, I asked you, I said, what are those top five that we could talk about? And you sent them to me. So we've got pictures for people who are watching on YouTube. And if you're listening on audio platforms, don't forget that all of this is available on YouTube. So if you'd like to see the pictures of what we're talking about, you can go on over to YouTube and take a look. But just before we get into those five, I do just want to ask you how you got into this. How did you get interested in archaeology? I mean, were you raised in a Christian home? How did all that come together for you?
1: I was raised in a Christian home and was a Bible reader from my childhood. Um, I, I, as, as a teenager, when I really started digging deeply into the scriptures, um, I was always frustrated by the things I could not understand. Like, For example, they they broke through a roof and they lowered their friend to Jesus. Mm. I'm thinking, well, what did a roof look like? I mean, surely it didn't look like mine, because I don't think you can break through my roof and lower your friend to Jesus. Um, Or they laid a man in the street, and Jesus healed him. Well, what did their streets look like? Surely Mm. they were different from ours. And so I just thought that the things that we struggled sometimes to understand— must have to do with our lack of understanding of the material culture. And sometimes we were getting beat over the head with those things, like there's Mm. supposedly some internal inconsistency. And I knew there wasn't, but I didn't know how to answer those things. And so that's what drew me toward archeology. span And ultimately it became an obsession And, uh, you know, I got involved in digs. I went back to school and earned a PhD uh, in the field and, you know, kind of worked my way through the ranks, I guess you would say, until ultimately, uh, you know, I was directing the excavations and engaging in an arena of ideas that I thought was really important because Mm -hmm. I was watching in uh, the Bible lands, Israel in particular, but also the surrounding areas, I was watching secularists make just unbelievable claims about the unreliability of the Bible that I knew wasn't true. And I knew that even the way they were using the data uh, Mm. wasn't accurate. So to adequately answer those, I was going to have to have the qualifications and the experience and the team. And so, you know, now here we are all these years later, that's what we're doing. We're in that position uh, to engage in the arena of ideas.
0: And you mentioned um, being able to understand what you're reading better by knowing what a street looks like or what the roof looks like. Mm-hmm. And this is just a little teaser for our audience. Um Dr. Stripling is gonna be coming back on the podcast pretty soon to talk about just that. We're gonna just in this episode we're going through top five ones that affirm the Bible, but we're also in the next episode gonna talk about some of the archaeological finds that actually illuminate how we can actually read the scripture and understand certain scriptures better. And I saw uh Scott, I saw you present this in In Texas, when we were together at a conference, and I just got so excited by some of the things I heard. So I'm just really excited to to get that episode uh, out to our listeners as well. All right, well, let's get into these top five archaeological finds. The first one here, I'm going to show a picture of. This is the Mount Ebal Curse Tablet. Now, um, not sure if you're aware, Scott, but I've done a whole episode on this with our good friend Jeremiah Johnston. Okay. And uh so so we've we've gotten, you know, kind of deep in the weeds, but I want to hear from you because this is your dig, right? Y- yeah. Your team discovered this. So what are we looking at here?
1: Yeah, well this was just voted, you know, 2022 just ended and so there's these top 10 lists that come out at the end of the year like what were the top 10 finds in Israel in the in the year 2022. And so there are two lists and so we were number 1 on one list and number 2 on the other list. So Wow. Um, I, I think there's pretty broad agreement that this is important, and that this is a this is a substantial text. Uh, it comes from Mount Ebal, which, if you'll remember, Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 27: When you come into the land and you gain a foothold, I want you to then go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal you'll place half the tribes on Mount Gerizim to pronounce the blessings of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant he's talking about, because that's where at El right there is where the Abrahamic covenant was cut. So in other words, you're going to go back to that place, uh, pronounce blessings from Mount Gerizim and curses from Mount Ebal. And Joshua 830 says that Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord. Adam Zertal, a secular Israeli archaeologist, found and excavated the site in the 1980s. He became a believer as a result of this, a believer in the the reliability of the text. And he was a secularist, totally. Uh, So it was super important. But unfortunately, he died before releasing his final publications. What I did in December of 2019 is I led a team uh, on an expedition and we relocated his dump pile the garbage, the dump that they had left behind. So after they had checked everything, then the dump pile was left. Using a new technology that we have perfected called wet sifting, we were able to go back through and I knew what we would find because we've already done test trials on this. And we were, we've were we been throwing away, Lisa, about 75% of the evidence in the past. And oh, wow. you asked me a question earlier, like, Um, how much of the land of the Bible has been excavated and why don't we find this or that. Uh, If a site, say Megiddo, was excavated and there was not evidence of something that was found, well, I guess not when we're throwing away 75% of the evidence Mm. also. So this is potentially revolutionary from a methodological standpoint and how we do archaeology. And that was my point of the project. When we wet-sifted those dump piles, we found this small lead tablet. So this is about the size of a business card folded in half and made of lead. And we knew immediately that it was a cursed tablet. It's called a defixio, And I know because I've seen hundreds of them. And they always have writing on them. There are always curses on them. And the difference in this one is that it was from Mount Ebal, from an altar where the Bible says, Joshua had built an altar to the Lord on the mountain of the curse. And so when we found this, I was just astonished. (laughs) I just couldn't believe how how is this even possible? And I told our team, you know, we don't know that it's from that time period. We've got to be careful. We have to do our research. And to make a long story short, we did find a lab in Prague, Czechoslovakia, that had expertise in scanning through lead. And I mean, what an amazing day we live Mm. in, right? Where you can scan through lead. And uh, we were able to scan through the lead and recover an ancient text that was older than Paleo-Hebrew. It's what we call proto-alphabetic Hebrew. It's when the language is first forming from the Egyptian hieroglyphs. They're morphing into Hebrew letters. And so that dates all the way back to the time of Moses and Joshua, which is, again, verisimilitude, which you would expect to find if the text was consistent with what we're finding in the material culture. Now, that publication will be out um, very soon. I mean, we have the peer reviewers are releasing to us in the next week or two their uh, their, fi- their reports and anything that we should tweak before before it goes public. But uh, the, the word is already out, and like I said, it was on the the... Top of the top ten lists for 2022. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. And one of the things we talked about with Dr. Johnston was how there's some pretty s- serious significance for this cursed tablet. In that, it, am I correct in saying that it's the oldest? Uh, well, it, it's maybe the first time we're seeing L and Yahweh together in the same, which is extremely significant because up until uh, very recently, I think even many scholars. Believed in what's commonly known as the documentary hypothesis, which was based a lot on this idea that you know some of the texts call God El, some call him Yahweh, so it must have been different authors and different you know viewpoints. But this is actually showing that they were used together, which is huge.
1: It's it's massive. So if you went to a seminary like Princeton Seminary or whatever, this is what you were taught that there's the J source and the E source and the D and the P, and they're mm-hmm. hundreds of years apart, they're not redacted until maybe the Persian period or the Hellenistic period, a thousand years after the events that are purported to have existed at that time. So in other words, how could you possibly trust that? Um, and of course, for a Christian, you might want to start with the words of Jesus that Moses wrote to right. Pentateuch, I mean, that's yeah. a good starting point. But this theory is out there, and how do you disprove it? I mean, just boggles my mind that this inscription refutes the documentary hypothesis. That was the furthest thing from my mind when we were doing this project. But when I saw the text and I have epigraphers, uh, one is Jewish, the other is Christian. They're both highly trained uh, epigraphers, experts in ancient handwriting and paleography. And, um, I mean, when they were giving the text back to me, I knew what I was seeing. But when I heard it from them, I was just blown away. There you have El and Yahweh side by side. Those names did exist at the same time. Mm
0: -hmm. To your knowledge, has there been anybody change their mind on on that hypothesis because of this tablet? Uh,
1: At this point, I've received countless emails from scholars, from uh, spiritual leaders, telling me that yes they're they're reexamining everything oh, on the that's basis of so you know everybody's waiting for the scientific article that's about to come out it's like 50 pages long it's extremely technical because we have to dot every i and cross every t you know to, to enter into this arena but I'll give you one example I was speaking at a great bilingual church in Texas recently about this and uh, the pastor a very bright man from a very prominent seminary uh, came up to me afterward and he just started crying Wow. And he said, you know, I was trained in this documentary hypothesis and I do believe in God. I do believe in the Bible. But for the last 25 years, I haven't had confidence in the text. You know, that when you can tell when somebody's standing in the pulpit and that person has full confidence in the text, Mm. as opposed to someone who's examining it, you know, Mm -hmm. walking around the edges he just said, this is the greatest day of my life. Wow. He said, you just set me free and multiply that times a thousand. Mm. Uh, and yeah.
0: Wow! Praise God. That's exciting. That is really exciting. Well, We're going to stay tuned on that story. We're looking forward to uh, the article being released and and all of this. So um, we've been kind of updating our people as we've gone along on this. So it's great to talk with you because you know you're you're the you. This was your dig. So that's really exciting. Um, okay, let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think. Um, I don't know, maybe the average Christian has a working knowledge of what what they're looking at here, but give us the story behind how these scrolls were found and what they are, and maybe the significance to biblical reliability that they, you know, illuminated for us.
1: Well, what we're looking at in the picture there, that's K4, where the mother load of the scrolls came from, but uh, at a site called Qumran, which is on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, around the year 200 BC, you have a group that collects there. And we now refer to these as Essenes. Um, They form out of a reform movement in Judaism when the Hasmonean kingdom takes upon themselves the office of king and priest. So they're already kings and then they make themselves the priest. Well, you can't do that biblically. okay? That our whole American idea of separation of powers comes from the biblical text of having legislative, executive, and judicial. So the Hasmoneans claim that they're king and priest. In protest to that, this group known as the Essenes formed, and they withdraw from Second Temple Period Judaism, saying basically it's an apostate form of Judaism, and they withdraw to various places because there's an enclave at Jericho and there are various enclaves, even in Jerusalem. But here at Qumran is where we know them best because of their library. And so they were very devoted to copying scripture in addition to scripture, sectarian texts uh, as well. Um, and, And so you've got a number of genres that are, that are floating around there. And when it's discovered in 1947, accidentally Um, and it comes to light first on the antiquities market and the scholars realize what they have, again, it's mind-boggling because the texts in the the caves at Qumran are 1,000 years older than the the oldest texts that we had in 1947, like the Aleppo Codex, for example, and the Cairo Codex and the Leningrad Codex. Those are the three that were the oldest at the time. And here you're predating that by over a thousand years. So you can imagine what skeptics had been saying, you know, our, our texts of the Bible were only a thousand AD and it, it had changed significantly between here and there. So we actually then had an opportunity to take a library from just before the time of Jesus and just after the time of Jesus and to compare it to those codices and to see if indeed it had changed. Hmm.
0: And so uh, talk a little bit about the Isaiah scroll that was found uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls and what significance that had even to—we've talked a lot on this podcast about the science of textual criticism, which is um, the the science of piecing together the wording of an ancient document when the original no no longer exists. And I know that Isaiah scroll was a huge find there at the Dead Sea Scrolls, so maybe talk uh, about that a little bit.
1: Well, let's put it in a bit of a context— the New Testament writers quote Old Testament books. And the four that they quote most often are are, are Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Genesis. Well, you go to the Qumran literature, the biblical scrolls, and there you have the most common manuscripts that were found were Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Genesis. And so very interesting, a a consistency there Mm -hmm. with, with... you would expect uh, to find, but the Isaiah scroll was phenomenal because, again, you're able to take something from about 150 BC, more or less, and then compare it and see that there had not been changes uh, in in the literature other than maybe scribal glosses or spelling changes or something like this, nothing that was of any significance. We uh, we even have commentaries on these. So you've got biblical scrolls, then you have the commentaries that they wrote on them, and then we have the the sectarian scrolls, like the rule of the community and the war scroll and, and scrolls like that. So looking at how they were interpreting scripture um, helps us very much in understanding the hermeneutic of the time of the New Testament. Um, right. And I'll give you one example, um, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Speaking of John the Baptist, we would say, um, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, the way that we tend to read that is a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The way they read it was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord.
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's different.
1: Yeah, Uh, and of course John is practicing baptism, which is a unique signature of the Qumran community, and he's very found very very close uh, by there, of course. Where John is baptizing is just a very close distance to the Qumran community. So the idea that by going to the wilderness, I will prepare the way of the Lord—that's what they thought they were doing. They were very eschatological, and they thought Mm -hmm. that this uh, battle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness was going to occur in their lifetimes, and I they were right. I mean, the the Romans, in this case, wiped them out in the year 68.
0: Mm. And, you know, you mentioned before we came on the air that um, often when you find an archaeological find, it's very controversial. People will challenge its authenticity, often has to go through a long process of being authenticated. And even still, there could be some pushback from certain scholars. What was was that like with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Is this pretty universally accepted or has there been some authenticity challenges to it?
1: Well, uh, it was so mind boggling that in this case, they were not challenged as forgeries. We have to be that way, Elisa, because uh, there are forgeries that are out there. Right, yeah. I see them all the time. You know, people reach out to me, you know, can you authenticate this? Can you authenticate that? Most of the time, they're forgeries. So Mm -hmm. there's money to be made. You've got charlatans that are making it. Uh, You have fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in many cases, modern seminaries that have spent large sums of money to purchase fragments that turned out to be um, not authentic. And so it is a problem. But in the case of like the original discovery, I mean, you had scrolls that were very ancient. Um, It was clear that they dated to that time period. Again, studying the handwriting style of the time, the epigraphy, uh, we're able to determine that and then with carbon dating and various other means as well.
0: Very good. All right, we're going to go to this third one here. Uh, So what are we looking at here? And uh, tell us about this find.
1: Well, welcome to Caesarea Maritima. This is Caesarea on the coast. And the Romans decided they did not want their administrative headquarters of Judea to be in Jerusalem around all those religious fanatics. Instead, they were going to have it down on the Mediterranean. And so they built a Roman city there with a hippodrome and a theater and all kinds of Roman accoutrements, even a, uh, a temple to Augustus, which is currently undergoing excavation there. But at the theater in secondary usage, uh, the Italian team that was excavating there in 1961 uncovered this slab. Which had an inscription on it that uh, is a dedicatory inscription to Tiberius. So, of course, remember Jesus is born under Augustus, he dies under Tiberius. So, this is a dedicatory inscription to Tiberius from Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilatus. And so, this is very, very interesting because prior to 1961, if you go back and look at textbooks, and you look at what was being read in the Ivy League uh, seminaries, you have a consensus that Pontius Pilate didn't exist. He's a mythological character. he's only mentioned in the New Testament. So how could hmm. we possibly have confidence in that? Uh, there's no extra biblical attestation of Pontius Pilate, and the New Testament gives him the term in Luke 3:1 and in Matthew 27 when it, the term we have in English as governor in the Greek manuscript, that's prefect. Hmm. And so critics said that's an incorrect term because the second century historian Tacitus had used the term procurator to describe the governors uh, who ruled Judea. So essentially they're saying that that term prefect uh, didn't come about until much later. And this this is evidence of an anachronism in the text. Well, in 1961, with this, this inscription, it says that Pilate's title was prefect, the same title that the New Testament writers gave, which again gives you a first century context and verisimilitude. So it was enormously important. Now, Elisa, nobody apologizes when this happens, you understand? I was going
0: to ask you that. Like, yeah. is there, would there changes, people change their mind? <laughs> nobody
1: says, you know, mea culpa. Um, yeah. I, w- I was wrong. They just move on to the next accusation. But it, it we do begin to set into place certain markers. And then the next time something comes along, we're able to refer back to the Pontius Pilate inscription. And then, of course, in a minute, we're going to talk about the House of David inscription and say, hang on, wait just a minute. Let's give this some time and research. We've got a track record now that we're dealing
0: with. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm wondering, too, I, you know. You, when you think about Gary Habermas and his minimal facts approach to the resurrection, and one of the minimal facts, and for anyone who's unfamiliar with that, Gary Habermas compiled uh, critical all the critical scholarship between I can't remember, like maybe 1975 and 2000 something, mm-hmm. and tried to figure out what most scholars agreed upon surrounding uh, Jesus and the resurrection. Like, what do they agree on, and then assess it from there. And one of his minimal facts that he said virtually all scholars, and something like 90% of scholars, agree on. Done, is that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And uh, I wonder if this, d- do you think this archaeological find uh, was largely informative in most scholars concluding that that was the case?
1: Yeah, without this, uh, Elisa, they would be saying it was a myth, mm. uh, didn't actually happen. Now, here's the interesting thing. The son of Herod the Great, when Herod died, his, his surviving three sons, the ones he did not kill, Um, His kingdom was divided among them. So you have Antipas ruling in the Western Galilee and Perea. You have Herod Philip ruling in Galvanitis in the Eastern Galilee. And then you have Herod Archelaus, only mentioned once in the New Testament. Herod Archelaus is ruling Judea-Samaria. That's the hotbed. That's where the action is. And so he only rules for 10 years, and then he's removed by the Romans for brutality. Now, Elisa. If you're too brutal for the Romans, <laughs> yeah. you're brutal, all right? And they remove him, and they replace him with a prefect. Pontius Pilate is the fifth such governor to rule Judea by the time of Jesus. Altogether, they're 15. Uh, Festus and Felix, mentioned later in the New Testament, those are also prefects ruling, ruling Judea. Um, so that's kind of the, the context of it. We have excavated, my team has excavated Pontius Pilate coins. So it started in 1961, but now we have the ring of Pontius Pilate oh, wow. that just two years ago from uh, Herodium it had been found 50 years earlier, but it wasn't examined carefully. It was cleaned a few years ago. And wow, there's Pilato.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: on. And now that's known. And as I said, my own team has excavated uh, so multiple evidences of Pontius Pilate, but if you go back to 1960, didn't yeah. exist.
0: I want to invite our listeners and our viewers to just stop and think for a moment. You're living in the 50s, and people are saying there's no evidence for King Day or. Uh, Pilate, you know this is this could be. I almost gave away the next one we're going to talk about. <laughs> there's no evidence for Pilate, and you know the Bible just makes things up. And uh, and and imagine if somebody in the 50s said, well, you know, then maybe the Bible's just not true, and that keeps them from faith. And now imagine things people say. Um, you know, there's no evidence for this or that. And as as Dr. Stripling mentioned, there's uh, you know over 90% of Israel has not been excavated. Uh, yet, is that is that right? Did I remember that right? And yeah. so, you know, just just take that into account and think about. Uh, now, I want to, I want to ask you a question before we get to our final one here. Um, has there ever been an archaeological find that disproved or challenged something that the Bible had said?
1: I have been asked that many times, and I can never come up with an example. Um, Nelson Glick, who was a very famous archaeologist of the previous generation famously said, there has never been an archaeological find that has contradicted the Bible. I cannot think of one either. Um, Sometimes, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, the, The common thinking is that roof tiles did not exist in Israel until the 2nd century AD, so a century after Jesus, yet we have a story in the Gospels at Capernaum of them breaking through a roof and lowering their friend to Jesus. In the Greek, the word is karamas or Mm. a ceramic. So in other words, they broke through a ceramic roof. It was an expensive roof. But the textual critic would say, but wait a minute, ceramic roofs did not exist in Palestine until the second uh, century. Mm. And so there you go. You've got evidence of another anachronism. So the text was not written until a much uh, later uh, period. Well, here's the problem with that. We find ceramic roof tiles in first century contexts. And then when we go to publish them, we're told, well, it can't be because they don't exist.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. That's
1: called circular reason. I was just
0: going to say it's very circular. Yeah. yeah.
1: So when I insisted, wait a minute. <laughs> Everything in this context is first century. You know, the the pottery, the carbon dating, everything we have is first century um, and insisted that it be published. Now we have discovered from other sites that they have not published those roof tiles based on circular reasoning. Well, it must be contamination or something uh, like that. So you're asking, has anything been found that disproved it? That's an example of sometimes where it may appear to, oh, there are no roof tiles. But when you dig a little deeper, pardon the pun, but when you dig (laughs) a little deeper uh, into it, you find that indeed there is an internal consistency.
0: It kind of reminds me of often what skeptics will say uh, against some of the prophecies in Daniel. And and the reason they'll say they're uh, inauthentic is just because they're too accurate. Like nobody could have prophesied that. So it has to be later, right? It has to have been after it already happened. which Yeah, what's the
1: thing in Isaiah? Cy- Cyrus, the mention of Cyrus. That's you right. Know, yeah. Yeah, possibly known Cyrus's name, right? Right. So, yeah. There's, there's no possibility in their minds of the supernatural uh, right. existing. Yeah, that's right.
0: All right, let's take a look at uh, this next one here. This is called the James Osh- Ossuary, I believe. It's, a, it's my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is this is a bone box. So we learned from Dr. Johnston that back in the first century when somebody was buried in a tomb, um, the body would be left to decompose, and then the bones would be put into an ossuary or a bone box. And so this is the James Ossuary. Tell us about this one.
1: Okay, that's exactly right. It's only, this is called ocellagium, and it's only, it's a form of secondary burial. It occurs from about 70 BC to about 70 AD. So you have a very specific period of time, and 1,000 of these have been found so far, 25% of them have inscriptions on them. And so they're normally uh, Aramaic inscriptions. It's Jerusalem limestone, and it's part of a wave of ritual purity that swept through late second temple period Judaism that involved using stone vessels instead of clay vessels and daily ritual immersion in water and ossuary burial. And so what you're looking at here is an ossuary. It's just long enough for the femur bone an adult femur bone. We have baby-sized ossuaries too, um, but this is an adult femur bone. And this is limestone from Jerusalem, and it has a seven-word Aramaic inscription on it. That inscription reads, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Oh, and that rocked the world. Oh,
0: sure. And, yeah.
1: uh, it, you've got three names there from the Gospels james joseph, joseph and jesus and so you start doing the probabilities what are the chances that someone named joseph had sons named uh james and jesus and that the the jesus was famous because of all those inscriptions like i said 25 percent of them have inscriptions only one other ossuary has a brother mentioned so the only reason huh. you would mention brother is if he's you know very very renowned and that's indeed what you have on this one Um, There was an immediate claim of inauthenticity, um, even that it was a a fake. Well, I know people who personally uh, examined it, and the patina is still in the crevices of those letters. The patina is what forms. It's a greenish sort Mm -hmm. of incrustation that forms over many hundreds of years. In the crevices, even though it had been cleaned so that you could read the the inscription, in the crevices, you still had ancient patina uh, that was in all seven uh, words. And after the seven-year trial that took place in Israel, um, all charges were dropped. And the majority of scholars today accept this as an authentic um, artifact. And if indeed it is, and I think that it is, um, along with the Shroud of Turin, you're looking at the single most valuable Christian artifact. Mm. This is James, who led the Christian church after Jesus' martyrdom until the year 62, when he himself is martyred. Which is written about by by Josephus, so an extremely significant uh, finding, and it's the only f- actual first century inscription that has the name of Jesus uh, on it.
0: Right, and this is this was particular in particular very significant in my faith journey because in the skeptical class that I was in that I wrote my book about, one of the things that was mentioned was, you know, did, the the pastor said to everyone, you know don't you wonder why the Bible is the only document that mentions Jesus? And so when God was rebuilding my faith through the study of apologetics and all these different disciplines, uh, one of the adventures I went on intellectually was figuring out where else Jesus has been mentioned outside of the Bible. And is that really true? Is it true that Jesus is not mentioned outside of the Bible? And what I discovered, and I've got a blog post on my website about this, I've talked about it a bit, um, because I I, I mean, I went to the—I looked at all of these different primary Mm sources— Read them for myself, and there's, you know, within about 150 to 200 years of Jesus' life, there's there's ten, maybe maybe you know, ten or eleven. Uh, non-Christian historical sources that mention Jesus as a real person. And this is this is a huge one because it actually to also, you know, of course, this is James Ossuary, but it, it's also confirming that Jesus and James were brothers, you know, as the Bible says and, uh, and talks about, you know, mentioning Jesus as a real person. So um, these, these are fun things to find that uh, really can help strengthen our faith um, and serve to illuminate things that are in the Bible. And uh, yeah. I know the Lord really used this one in my, in my own life as well. So wow. it's very cool. And and it we have the bone box very, of Caiaphas as well. Do we, do we, is that yes. authenticated? And
1: yeah, it is. Uh, it's also, both of these are in the Israel Museum uh, today, but the Caiaphas ossuary has his name on the side as well. It's very ornate. Notice how this is a very plain mm-hmm. kind of an ossuary. Uh, the Caiaphas one is extremely ornate. And uh, here's something that very few people know about that you may, and your listeners may find fascinating. <laughs> Um, And they could read about this. Incidentally, um, Dr. Evans, who you also met at the conference where Dr. Evans wrote a book on ossuaries, Jesus and the ossuaries. So you could get a lot of details on ossuaries from his book. But here's a little uh, fact that inside the Caiaphas ossuary, they found crucifixion nails when it was excavated. Crucifixion nails. And so as weird as this seems to us, there was a fascination in the first century with the power of crucifixion nails, because they took someone's life and that they themselves had power. And isn't that weird that one of the people who condemned Jesus to death,
0: yes
1: that there are crucifixion nails in his ossuary, the people who condemned Jesus to death, incidentally, we have proof that they're real people. Caiaphas, Pontius yeah. Pilate, who we just talked about, Herod. I mean, those are the ones who condemned him to death. If they're all real, why would we question that Jesus was real?
0: Right. I feel like that that finding the crucifixion nails in the Caiaphas Ossuaries get like a great sermon analogy. <laughs> like pastors yeah. who are listening, that'll preach, right? You can, you can come up with a lot from that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or as we say in Texas, that dog will hunt.
0: That will hunt. That's right. Um, very cool. Okay. So this final one, I also want to give a little personal um, story about this next one as well. Again, when I was in that uh, progressive church where my faith was challenged, and one of the challenges was the—, uh, uh, the the historicity of Old Testament characters. We were told Moses probably didn't exist, Abraham probably didn't exist. And I remember asking the pastor one day, I said, you know, you've said that, you know, Abraham probably didn't exist, Moses probably didn't exist. I said, like, what about King David? What about getting into the New Testament? And I remember the pastor saying, well, probably— the earlier you go, the less historical it is. So, you know, because I said, well, how do you know Jesus was a real person if you don't think Abraham was? And, and he said, well, probably the earlier you go, the more myth- mythological it was. And then I learned about this guy right here. This is for yeah. people who can't see. It looks like a big chunk of stone with some writing on it. What are we looking at here?
1: <laughs> well, this is, and incidentally, before I answer that, uh, the first verse of the New Testament, Matthew one this is the story of jesus christ the son of abraham the son of david yeah um and so that's that's how you begin the new testament so if mm-hmm. abraham and david are not real people then why would you believe jesus is? right um you're looking at what we call the house of david inscription it was found in the gateway plaza at tel dan in northern israel uh, in secondary usage, it's written in Aramaic. Um, it's a victory stela of an Aramean uh, king, probably Hazael, and from the ninth century BC. And he's talking about the people he has conquered here in Israel. And he's erected his stela, and he refers to those of the house of David. And so this is just about 100 years, incidentally, after after David, and he's already referring to this dynasty that's ruling as the house of David. Hmm. And this is dynastic. I mean, it's clearly in the ancient Near East. This is how you refer to the founder of a, of a dynasty. And in line 11, I think it's highlighted for your viewers on the picture that we're looking at, they can see the, the reference here to Ba'it, the house of uh, David. And so this is huge because just like Pontius Pilate, we were getting beat over the head. There's no extra biblical evidence of, of King David and he's mythological, I mean, killing giants, give me a break, mm-hmm. you know, this is it's just, and, and Goliath was a Greek, so, you know, this is just another interpolation of Greek mythology, and, and so forth, well, indeed, it turns out David is a historical person who ruled over a kingdom when and where the Bible says that, that he did, now, that's, that's pretty amazing, Elisa, when you mm-hmm. stop and think about it, and since this, we have other inscriptions, uh, uh, archaeologists and scholars went back and re examined the Mesha Stella, what's called the Moabite Stone. And another reference is there to the house of David as well. And even the palace of King David has very likely been excavated in Jerusalem. So, uh, had we not found these things, in their minds, the Bible would be guilty until proven innocent. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a really interesting point, and it's important to remember, is that in the minds of the skeptics and and people who often bring these claims, the Bible really is considered guilty until proven innocent. And I think that what this gives me confidence in is that over and over again throughout history, we continue to discover, even just the, the Mountie Ball tablet, just the most recent discovery, we continue to discover artifacts that help support Various historical facts in the Bible, and um, I wonder if, just as we close out today, if you could give our listeners and viewers some encouragement. What message would you hope they'd walk away with from all of this? And um, I know you're so passionate about your work, and uh, and and just you know, what would you hope to inspire us with today as we as we leave this conversation?
1: Well, I, I hope people will walk away realizing that God loves us, that he has an enormous plan for our lives and for the world. And this this blatant skepticism um, is is a problem, but maybe sometimes we're over-exaggerating it to a, mm. to a degree. Like I taught at Hebrew University like a decade ago or whatever. I was asked to, to lecture there. And I talked for 45 minutes or an hour about Bible and archaeology. And when I finished, these are PhD and master's level students. They lined up to talk to me afterwards. Mm. Uh, Every one of them wanted to shake my hand. They said, this is the most amazing thing we've ever heard. You're the first one all year, they said, to use the Bible. Wow. This is Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Mount Scopus campus this is the more conservative of the Israeli universities they weren't against what I was sharing they hadn't even heard it wow. and so what I would encourage people to do is to be bridge builders you know connect with people engage in the arena of ideas and educate themselves as much as they can but have confidence that when when the Bible says something happened historically that we 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 can have confidence that it actually did happen historically. We're dealing with real people, real places, and real events.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much. Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Scott Stripling. If you want to know more about him, go to scottstripling.net. You can invite him to your church or your event to present. I've, I've watched him present, and it's fascinating and uh, just makes it, you know, it's it's just so confidence-building in the the faith that that we, the Jesus we're trusting in the Bible that we're trusting is his revealed word. So, you can invite Scott to your event. Um, he has a blog, and there's all kinds of information on that. So, check that out. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribing, clicking the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video helps so much. Also, rating and reviewing on Apple or Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts also really helps to get the word out. If you want access to bonus content and early access to podcasts, you can go to patreon.com slash Childers and sign up there. And with that said, it's been so great to be with you this week, and we will see you next time.